Welcome to the AIER Standard, a production of the American Institute for Economic Research. I'm Ethan Yang. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, such as life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. These are the words inherent to the American founding, and these are words that most Americans probably know. Uh, these, are also, these are also the ideas and concepts that the now immortal state French aristocrat Tocqueville observed when he visited America and wrote his legendary work, Democracy in America, where he observed the inner workings of American democracy, equality, and liberty. He noted the advantages, but also some of the disadvantages, such as what he warned about known as the tyranny of the majority. Joining us today is AIR's, but this is a university that AIR has a very long-standing uh, relationship to, and I was wondering if you'd tell us a little bit about why you chose a UFM and what, where they're strong at and what their, what their brand is. Mm -hmm. Well, the founding of the university started because, well, the founder was having a, he wanted to know how to change Guatemala, how to make uh, a prosperous country out of Guatemala, and so what ways and what ways he could influence that of, of this country. Mm. And they, he thought about maybe developing a newspaper or founding a political party, and in the end, um, helped, and uh, I think by Hayek and also, of course, Liberty Fund and other mm -hmm. institutions here in the United States, he said, let's, let's get a university going, because in the end, a university is what's going, it's the most long range, mm. um, and the idea is to educate people uh, in, in Guatemala in the principles of free market and, and liberty, basically. Mm. So it's a university dedicated to what we know as free market economics, in a way. Yes. The idea was, how can we get these ideas of freedom basically going in a society? And so the idea was to found a university to specifically do that. Mm. That's correct. Oh, that's very quite, quite fascinating. And you told me your uh, PhD is focusing on Tocqueville's work and what he calls equality, right? Mm -hmm. And it's, uh, equality is a very, it's a pretty big buzzword these days. What do you mean when you say well, you're focusing on Tocqueville's conception of equality? Um, I'm focusing in the tyranny of the majority, which is one of the terms that you were explaining at the beginning. Um, but it's impossible to understand what Tocqueville means by tyranny of the majority. And basically what I'm doing is a research from uh, antiquity all the way up to today on how that concept's developed. But it's impossible to understand that concept without um, understanding what Tocqueville means by equality. Mm. As you say, uh, equality is a very contentious term, I think, in the United States, but also in Guatemala, in Spain and in England and Europe, where I'm from. It's constantly the debate, um, basically speaking. And now it looks like in modernity where there's a difference between those that are looking for equality of outcome versus those that are looking for more of an equality of opportunity or a more classical liberal sense and equality before the law, mm -hmm. which is what's important, right? No privileges given by the state to any of the groups um, and the dignity of the individual, basically. And in the first pages of Democracy in America, uh, the thing that most captivates Tocqueville's attention, he says there, is the concept or this thing that he finds when he arrives in the United States in the 1830s, which is the equality of conditions. Mm. Um, this, uh, he goes in through various ways to explain the origin of this, but what he finds in the end, it's a much, a very, I would say, sociological slash psychological interpretation in the sense that what he's trying to say is that, uh, in the difference with France, with which he's coming from, he is, of course, coming from an aristocratic family himself. When one walks through the street and you bump into strangers, 
you don't think that anyone's superior to you because mm. of name, because of family, because of birth. So mm. all of these things that were still current in Europe um, when he's still writing, of course. And uh, that uh, incredible moment, uh, fascinating moment for the intellectuals, which is the French Revolution. Um, and what he's saying is that this, what he finds in America is this equality of conditions, that uh, you meet people um, all over the place um, and in no way do they think that they are less than other or more mm. by, um, by things that we don't get to choose in our own lives, like it's birth, right? Mm. So help us understand that a little bit more. So Tocqueville, like, I guess, take us into Tocqueville's shoes and how shocking or I guess how inspiring. I don't know how he felt, but, um, you know, he's a Frenchman. He's an aristocrat. How, how, how really, how, I guess, hierarchical was Europe at the time? And how, how did he react to seeing the sort of uh, equal birthright sort of mentality in America? Mm-hmm. He has a, a uh, one of her comments, which is one of the most famous, I think, and you find it in the Liberty Fund introduction by Eduardo Noya, who's, by the way, my, uh, my supervisor. And he's, he's using, a, a, I think, a very powerful um, simile in saying that he feels like he's, he's in a raft, in a rapid-moving mm-hmm. river, and that everything is changing uh, so fast, uh, with so much speed, and we're all sort of going into an abyss without being able to understand what's going on. Mm-hmm. And this is, I think, a, a way of interpreting or understanding not just the French Revolution, but also those post-revolutionary times in, in Europe when he's writing. Um, and his two most important works are, of course, Democracy in America, but also uh, The Old Regime and the Revolution, mm-hmm. which is his last great book um, before Napoleon III comes on. But... Basically, what he's trying to say is that he's trying to understand what's going on. And for him, the great causes of the revolution um, is the disparity, we could say, between what he understands as the um, social state of a society. We would call that society today versus the state. Mm. So the social state versus the political state or political institutions. And what's the motor of history, and this is why I find he's... um, in the complete opposite to Marx, in, mm. in a way, is because he thinks that the motor of history are the mores. So these beliefs, are these sentiments of the heart that people have. And so what you get or what happened during the French Revolution was that the revolution had already taken place, is saying, in the world of ideas. Mm. And what we had uh, when the French Revolution really starts is a violent, we could say, um, violent clash between those world of ideas that were already pulling in some direction, but with some political institutions that were further too far away from that. So it's that violent clash of the two worlds coming on at once. First with those cries of freedom, but then of course with all the terror and all the tyranny that's going to be developing out of the uh, French Revolution. So this is basically what he sees the motor of history. And he says, because of the Enlightenment, because of the Christian ideas, people already thought they were the same in the world of ideas. Mm -hmm. And sort of what happens eventually in all political societies is that these ideas will have a huge impact on political institutions. And then that will create a cycle between the both. But that's more or less of the motor in history. And when he arrives here in the United States, he sees uh, the United States as a country that's sort of... um, that has the perfect of both worlds because they could 
because it was so new, everything and the frontier was constantly advancing and um, everyone could more or less translate what they wanted to into a reality. He sort of says the, um, the North Americans had the gift of having all of the, the ideas of the Enlightenment coming from Europe, of course, and of Christianity, but at the same time didn't have to fight with all of this baggage of old aristocratic mm. families and kings and elsewhere. So in America, what you wanted to do, it could sort of uh, be done nearly immediately. Mm. Right. So let's dive a little bit more into that, because I think you're making a very interesting uh, structural comparison in the sense mm -hmm. that he says you've outlined that uh, revolutions come from ideas. People want something right um, in a state like France, aristocratic France, uh, monarchical France. If you want something and the king doesn't want doesn't like it, you know, that's then you have a then you have a disparity. And that's why you get a revolution. Mm -hmm. Right. America in a free society. Um, if you want something, you go ahead and do it within reason, of course. Um, so can you dive a little bit more into that almost sort of like that political structure or argument that you're laying out? Mm -hmm. Basically, it has to do with, I mean, maybe more modern political scientists would call it vested interests mm. uh, or or a scale of different political groups near or influencing political power. And what you find in the United States and he what he's specially captivated by, I find when I read him, is the idea of the pioneer mm. who's constantly going out further, who's making a life for himself, who's preoccupied with, you know, making it through the winter, basically. And as soon as he moves further down, his shed is again taken over by nature. Mm. And it looks like man was never there, basically. And he's captivated by, will these societies are, do really have the liberty to start from zero their own political regimes? Mm. Of course, they're carrying with them what's the most important thing, the mores for Tocqueville, their traditions, their way of viewing the world, their beliefs, because for him, Christianity is going to be something that's very important in a democratic society. Um, but they have that facility that they don't have to fight against vested interests, basically. Mm. And that gives a sort of freedom in uh, the way that local communities organize um, that it's harder to see, he was going to be saying, in uh, the old European societies. But at the same time, he says that this work is not just a travelogue about his travels in America. It's a mirror. Mm. And this image of a mirror, I find that is very, it's very um, interesting because he's saying America, in a way, is representing the future. And he's not just looking at America um, to, you know, explain to the Europeans why the Americans are so great. He's also saying, well, this is what's happening in America. It's also happening in Europe. But the American represents a successful case of a transition to a quality of conditions, he's going to be saying. But this is happening in over Christendom. This is why he's going to be saying that the French Revolution was not French and it wasn't even a revolution. And mm. everyone's like, what is he referring to by that? Of course it was French and of course it was French because mm. uh, oh, it was a revolution. And he's saying it's not French because these ideas are permeating all over the West at the same time, all over Christendom. So it's not just in France that this is happening. And at the same time, it's not a revolution because, as I'm saying, the key moment is uh, not the Bastille or, or any of these great moments of the revolution, but what's happened before, what's happened in this world of ideas. And if one follows Tocqueville, one could really understand the importance, I think, of institutes like, like, like where we're here today, the American mm. Institute for Economic Research, because all of these ideas, all of these sort of think tanks, institutes, research uh, that works with ideas are key for the future of societies for Tocqueville.
Mm. So it's that they spark the, the new ideas that bring about the future, essentially. Exactly. So when we talk about, I guess before we move into that, when, so I guess knowing all that, does Tocqueville, when he come over, does, is he horrified? Is he inspired? How, how, like, I guess really briefly, how does he feel when he sees this? Mm -hmm. This is why Tocqueville has been termed a liberal, sometimes a conservative, a weird type of liberal, some people have called mm -hmm. him. Um, and this has to do because when he comes to the United States, I would say it's mainly a positive image he takes from the United States, but he also sees uh, many dangers. Mm. And here, if you want to, we can come into the uh, tyranny of the majority and the constant danger that a democratic society has with, with an over-centralizing political force, mm. which is going to be the state. These are sort of the two, some of the two main things that he's going to be most scared about. He also has some interesting anecdotic stuff that he doesn't like, perhaps. But for our conversation today, maybe we can we can fix on to those two things that he doesn't like. Mm. Um, out of equality, which is where our conversation began, he's going to be saying that now that we don't have an aristocracy and uh, these great, you know, figures of the Enlightenment, because if we, ad if we advance into a more equal society, then what's going to happen is that um, individuals will not want to say that other individuals are over them, as I mm. was beginning this conversation. But even not so intellectually, we'll say Tocqueville, and this is something that's negative, of course, because it is more than evident that there are people who have more time to study or who have a greater expertise mm. on, I mean, if you hit your car, you want to be in the hands of the best surgeon when you get into the hospital. So, of course, his opinion mm -hmm. is, um, or his knowledge is superior to yours in many areas. But something that's going to happen is that individuals are going to, something that's great and he's going to like because he thinks that this is a providential fact, that indeed God, this is where God wants society to go in a way. But it's going to have this negative input in, in the sense that, as we start to think that we're all equal, that's going to create an incentive in which society is going to start atomizing. Mm. We're going to have this uh, sort of individual, uh, that is this sort of individualism in which there's no individual, mm -hmm. in which it's a fragile and debilitated individual who is more or less, more and more just preoccupying himself with his own life, with, you know, getting his pay, getting his degree, making his family goes along. Basically what the political life is, is getting into whether we like it or not. And that's going to create a, a two bad incentives. On the one side, Tocqueville is going to think that that's going to permit that the state is going to start growing and growing and mm. growing at, at the expense of those um, intermediary powers, we could say. And so we're going to arrive into a society in which it's a great state and very atomized and separated individuals. Mm. So that's something that's very negative. And at the same time, because we don't believe that we have great thinkers that are better than us, whether we like it or not, mm. that's also going to say, so wh where is the individual going to look in? And what is going to be his references um, mm. when moving in around in society? And that's where the tyranny of the majority starts, because what he's going to be saying is that because we're all separate, and we don't have those references that help us understand political life, for example, what's going to happen is that we're all just going to say, well, public opinion. Mm. And public opinion is what everyone is going to be looking on to more or less 
uh, to more or less navigate their day-to-day lives. Mm. Uh, this is something that he takes from Rousseau and other thinkers, but basically the idea is that none of us, we all need opinions. We all need other people's opinions to navigate our lives. Mm. If you needed to investigate the 100% of how everything works in your life, that's, pro- that's impossible. I don't know how my microwave works. Mm. I just put it in the timer and I know it, it gives mm-hmm. me what I need. So. Um, but the basic problem is that these, the public opinion in democratic society is going to rule over everything else. Mm. Okay. And so when it comes to this public opinion versus, I guess, an objective right or wrong, or at the very least, a more educated opinion, mm-hmm. he's mostly speaking, I guess you can see those trends today in a sense that, uh, for example, like price controls or monetary policy, you know, the public would say, you know, we want the price controls, we want inserts, whatever economic policy, and it's because more people want it than not, that that makes it right. Mm-hmm. Whereas an economist would say, you know, like, there, here's all the equations. I did the research, right? This is not a good idea. And we're starting to base, I think a lot of politicians really tap that, right? The public opinion element is like, it doesn't matter what uh, the economists say. They're just, you know, that's their opinion. Uh, but, you know, we want these, we want these various policies, regardless of whether they're productive or not. Mm-hmm. The, the basic problem there, of course, is what he was saying, that the tyranny of the majority, and that's one of the most, I think, most um, terrifying passages in the book, is he says it's like a wheel. Uh, a huge wheel that is crushing the individuals and it doesn't even stop to hear the cries of those that it's crushing. Mm. And that's exactly how it works. And the great problem, though, it's not just that what you'll find is intellectuals and politicians dancing around what they think is what the public opinion says. So it's going to be sort of a new sort of deity in, mm. in, uh, in society. It's also that... Those small individuals or those intellectuals, poets, artists, you know, whatever it is, or simple laymen that don't want to, um, that maybe don't share what the majority is saying in the mainstream newspapers and so on. What's very dangerous is that these small individuals that don't think that how that terrible wheel that's crushing everyone else is doing don't want to say anything Mm. and so he's saying old tyrannies like the old kings could you know put you in jail you could you could be tortured killed whatever it was but it was a tyranny over your body they couldn't do everything on your mind Mm. your mind was free even if you were in jail you could still hold on to your beliefs but this great tyrant this great despotism that's Mm. created by the tyranny of the majority is a lot more is I would say, terrible, because it's psychological. Mm. You don't dare, if you're in a ta- dining table, having a, you know, a lunch or dinner with your friends, you don't want to, set, you don't want to be out of the group. There's mm. such a huge pressure to conform mm. with what the group says. So those people who think differently are not going to say anything uh, because they're going to be scared that they might be ostracized, basically speaking. And at the same time, those that are being crushed and are trying to do something about it and are being vocal about it um, won't find many people who are going to help them because they're going to be scared mm. seeing how they're treated by the tyranny of the majority, you know. And there you can get into Twitter and mm. yes. how the Inquisition works in Twitter, how mm. everyone wants to be sort of on the right side of history. And they're crushing on everyone who just sometimes is saying something that's really common sense. Mm. And sometimes we might say, hey, He's saying something that's quite sensible, but no one's going to defend him because he's seeing that he's being grinded on mm. Twitter. You know? And so this, you, Tocqueville would say this is derived from 
base like, individualism gone wrong. In a yes. And so how, how do you link the atomization, I guess to summarize, how do you link the atomization of the individual uh, created by, you know, like a right, like a good cause, like, you know, freedom, individual liberty. How does that degrade to, I guess, what we are approaching right now? It's the atomized individual that prefers to, I guess, side with the group, whether it's right or wrong, or regardless of whether it's right or wrong. Mm -hmm. Well, here, and this is one of the most, I think, most important passages in the book, is the role of associations. Just as he's going to be thinking in the old days, his old days, the aristocracy could be a counter, could be a balance to the king or a separation of powers, if you want to look at it in the classical liberal mm. term. Um, and of course, aristocracy is going to be wiped off. He's basically mm. saying by democracy, how can we have something like the, arist the aristocracy? So how can we have something that can balance this tyranny of the majority and at the same time the state, which is something I didn't get into? But he's going to say something that is very common in democracies is going to be because we're constantly, uh, you know, so, something that's not wrong in itself, that each of us is trying to get along with our own freedom and do our own stuff. But how he's going to say that's going to provoke that the state's only going to grow and grow and grow because mm. the state is going to say, oh, don't worry, just focus on you, just do you. Mm. And I'll take care of, you know, your, this problem. Mm. I'll also take care of your health. I'll also take, uh, you know, control of other areas of your life. Just be comfortable, just do you, but the state's going to grow and grow and grow and grow. And mm. this is the, the problem of, of centralization that Tocqueville is going to be saying. So as I was saying, the associations work as an, a new aristocratic body. And an association is something that he really likes because when he's traveling around the United States, he says, the Americans join for everything. I mean, mm. they, hail, they have council meetings for everything to where a road needs to cross or if we need to build a new church or whatever it is. They see the Americans are constantly getting together to do things. Mm. And this is for if one reads the book. This is one of the great things I find. It's not just an author saying, look at all the problems and society is just going to hell. Mm. He's also saying, well, there's way out of this. There's way out of this democracy that's coming, which he's not against democracy, only against some darker sides of democracy, mm. I would say. How could we do, how can we do to counterbalance that? And again, this is something that works. For example, the university where I work at, in the Universidad Francisco Marroquín, this is a great place where even if, you know, local politics and newspapers and primary education have been taken over by this tyranny of the majority and socialists that are trying to you know, disguise ideology as science mm. and, and stuff like that. This university where I work with, or this institute, or places like this are places when we can get together, people that more or less think alike, classical liberals, which we always are into mm. deep discussions because mm. no one thinks 100% alike. But at the same time, it gives us a force and it gives us um, a way of influencing public opinion, mm. which is basically what think tanks and institutes aim to do, isn't it? Um, so this is the great counterbalance and something that could really save uh, demo the democratic despotism that Tocqueville is, is fearing, is the role of these associations. Mm. So back to the role of associations versus I guess, the centralization of power. So Tocqueville believes that uh, we almost, we, as much as we like our freedom, we also have this inherent collectivist energy within us. And that could be either harnessed towards 
of creating, you know, all these great associations, getting things done, or it could be harnessed to empower the state. Is that a good summary of what he believes? Yes. There's also something that I didn't say, but it's very much related to your comment here, Ethan, and it has to do with he sees a dialectic between equality and freedom. Mm. Ideally, in a society, what you want is a tension between both. Um, but if one, um, if what you find is that one of the two elements is sort of monopolizing or or having its way over the other in one way or another, that's going to lead to uh, the destruction of society. What we're viewing today, I would say, in modernity is the monster of equality, mm. uh, you know, understood very differently from what Tocqueville, as I'm saying, understood as equality, which is this sort of prestige or mm. this psychological interpretation of equality. Taking over liberty and quashing it down right, mm. is, is a, a bit where we're moving in, I think, as an observer to the United States, that's sometimes how I feel when I look at the United States as, a, as, a, as an external observer. But in Spain and in Europe, this is where we're going, right? Mm. And something that's very interesting I find in Tocqueville when he's talking about equality is that he says equality, the less equality you have, the more rage there's going to be about it. Mm. And that explains really well why we have these sort of extremist uh, feminist movements in the United mm. States and in Spain, but you don't find that in the Middle East in many mm. places. Why is that? Well, Tocqueville would say because the lesser inequality there is in society, the more unbearable it's going to be for mm. people. Why? Because now everyone can fix their eyes on that tiny bit of inequality that still exists. And there's going to be a huge rage about it. Like, let's tear the system down or whatever it is, which is super counterintuitive because mm. you're saying, hold on. These are the societies in which equality, you know, if you look at the position of, of women in Spain, in my own country, it's one of the best places in the world mm. for, for women by most statistics. Mm. At the same time, there's so, so much rage going on about it. And then they say, well, that's the left's doing it all the time, saying, oh, this is the problem of capitalism. Mm. When it's like, wait a minute, no, it's capitalism that actually freed uh, mm. women, right? But he's going to be saying this is one of the dangers that's going to be inherent to democracy always, that the less inequality there is, the more unbearable it's going to be. Whereas if you think about it, it should be the other way around. Mm. Whether a huge inequality there should be, mm. you know. I guess there's almost like um, like a sensation loss when there's more of it. I like to dive into more into, um, I guess, the relationship between the state and associations, because you hear a lot of politicians today like uh, Bernie Sanders calling who actively oppose charities of all things right uh, from from one side it might just seem like craziness but i guess from a more from what you're saying this actually if you believe in a larger state uh, this makes a lot of sense so if you can talk about that for a little bit yeah um hayek of course is going to be writing a lot later than tocqueville but basically even though if tocqueville doesn't talk about that function of the associations I think there's the the great thing that local associations tend to have is that they have more knowledge of what's going on in where they live, you know, whereas that old, you know, and far away bureaucrat has no idea what's going on. So there's a problem of information yes, mm. uh, in, in, and how information is dispersed throughout society. So that's one of the reasons I think why. Um, the importance of intermediary powers are important. But for example, Nisbet, who would be a great follower of Tocqueville in his quest for society and so on, is going to be saying that one could really explain modern society by that war that's been happening between the state and intermediary institutions, you know, mm. 
Giles, the church, whatever you name it, right? So the, the, the church understood that the main problem for the expansion of its power were these intermediary institutions because it knew. And it's one of the tragedies that for the state, the more isolated and inactive that we are, the better. The easier it is for the despot or the rulers in charge to get away with their laws and, and so on. But these associations form a formidable power because these associations as a group of individuals can really have a say. You know, they can go into media, we're, you know, recording a video, a podcast uh, that's going to get out there. You can go on TV. Um, mm. You can influence public opinion if you're an association, mm. because suddenly people say, well, if a lot of people got together for this institution, then they're representing something that's valuable for them. Mm. And it doesn't need to be a political um, representation. It could just be people, you know, meeting together to read mm, Mises mm. or an association of bird watching, whatever it is. But the more associations we have, the more they can put pressure on public opinion and also, of course, in the political process. Mm. And this reminds me a lot of my research that AIER focuses on China. And this is basically the flip side of the U.S. where uh, they're cracking down on charities, nonprofits uh, that are trying to you know, provide welfare and good things for society. But they recognize that if you let people organize themselves like that, what's next, right? The CCP, the government's supposed to be the welfare provider, not, you know, what Amnesty International or something like that, or the, U the United Nations, right? Um, so I think this is a really universal, I guess, fact about power is that um, this, when this, if you have private associations, you let people uh, come together, uh, then you have an entity besides the state that people can look to, um, which is fundamental for liberty, but really dangerous if you want an authoritarian system. Absolutely. So I like to, I guess, go really far back about the tyranny, back onto the tyranny of the majority topic. Um, I remember uh, before this podcast, you mentioned uh, Athens, Plato, Aristotle. Um, Athens, of course, was one of the first democracies. Uh, the United States was probably the more developed democracy, but Athens, you know, was the first experiment, for, at least from what I can remember, right? Mm -hmm. So I think, were they, were they talking about the tyranny of the majority even thousands of years ago? Um, not explicitly and not like Tocqueville uh, says it, but if one reads, for example, Plato's Republic, one is shocked by how he's viewing this same phenomenon. I mean, this is my own reading of Plato. And as you can imagine, mm, there's, probably, yeah, there's, yeah, probably a lot. there's a lot of um, discussion in the academic world about Plato's problem with democracy, although nobody argues that Plato was against democracy. That's perfectly clear. But out of my reading, and I've just published a, an, an article in, uh, in a Guatemalan magazine that's uh, joint with the University Francisco Marroquin, and it's called uh, Plato's Problem with Democracy. And uh, I find, while reading him in, uh, in the Republic, but maybe also in the laws, that his main problem with democracy is that he calls it uh, the, the reign of opinion. Mm. Plato thought that... To keep it short, basically, you could you could be either an ignorant on something, you could have an opinion on something, which is something better than ignorance, and you could have real knowledge on on something, right? Mm. And he's going to be saying the problem with democracy is that it's the rule of opinion, and it is foolish to think 
that everyone has knowledge because people do not have knowledge. This is why he's going to develop the theme of the philosopher king mm. and the type of ideal state that he's going to develop. And even if we don't like the his fix to the problem, um, there's a great philosopher, a Spanish philosopher called Ortega, said, who said that the classics are classics because they never refuse to die. Mm. They're always battling with us. And in this way, um, Plato is still relevant in this discussion because the problem that he detects is still real. If you, um, you know, go out or if I sit down with my family or friends, people who, don't, who are not into the political worlds, worlds like us, perhaps, mm. they probably just go out and vote every four years and they'll do it because they like the candidate or because he's handsome or because they hate the other candidates. So it's a, you know, a protest uh, mm -hmm. vote or whatever it is. But we all know that this is not how we should be voting that the ideal of democracy is that you have an informed citizenship and that that informed um, citizen is going to really study the different things and see, you know, what's better for his country. Mm. And back in the day, Plato's already saying, wait a minute, that's not how this happens. Of course, the vote that it was a direct democracy in the fifth century uh, BC in Athens. But his problem is going to be that it's the reign of opinion and that opinion is... Um, modeled by groupthink it's uh, modeled by other factors that are not rational basically speaking and they're not people having this so to get back to your question yes in a way it, the first democracy had these problems and i do think that the founding fathers uh, of the united states but also um, the most important reformists in europe too had the were afraid of the Athenian example because mm. it was a direct democracy and the mob, basically speaking. Mm. But I think that at the same time, and this is what I'm also researching, and I'll see where I get this because I'm, already, I'm only in my third chapter at the moment, but I think that they might have underlooked this problem of democracy too. Mm. And again, to, to, to um, connect that with Tocqueville, this is again the, the importance of associations because for Tocqueville, you, you needed to teach freedom. And freedom could only be taught practically. Freedom was what you do when you got into your association. You have an, an, an informal um, or a formal conversation with the rest of the people in the association and you vote for things to, to happen. Mm. This is why local politics was so important for Tocqueville, because he says you can't expect for people to vote in the general elections very well if they're not used to handling politics at home. If they're not used to, you know, looking at the budget of their community, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Sort of the only way in which you can educate people to have a more or less educated vote. And with this, I finish is if they've if they've been educated at the local level. Otherwise, what you're going to get is sort of a band of cattle who just choose their shepherd every four years. Mm. So this brings us to. I guess the ultimate point is like all empires rise and fall, whether it's a democracy or, or an imperial system, what have you. Is this sort of democracies, this is the fine line we walk when we live in a democracy, it's either a choice between some, you know, this amazing experiment in freedom and association or the centralization of power and ultimately, you know, authoritarianism. Is this, is this sort of the fine line that we're walking almost basically every four years with our democracy? Mm -hmm. Perhaps not every four years, and that, that will depend on the elections. Uh, so, for example, some of the problems with the socialism in the 21st century, and Venezuela is a good case of that, is that you only need to elect, you only need to elect the despot once. Mm. 
once he's in power, he's going to do away with elections and all that. Um, but, for example, it's interesting that Plato, and I think this is in the book eight of the Republic, he sees not democracy as the worst system. Democracy is one is the not the last worst system. The last one is tyranny. Mm. So he thought that democracy would always lead into tyranny. Mm. That is what Plato thought uh, back in the day for very interesting reasons, too. But um, this is something that is always very important. And sort of those famous quotes that you have from the founding fathers of um, the price of liberty is, is eternal mm. vigilance mm -hmm. and, and so on and so on. These things, I think, still ring true. And Tocqueville quotes Madison. He also quotes Jefferson and, and so on. But I think the, this is one of the important things in his book is that he also gives you a, a solution for that not to happen. Because equality is something that would be raging and that would be something unstoppable. It's something, a providential fact he's going to be saying. He sees sort of a two way out there. Mm. One would be democracy with freedom, which is the ideal, which is what he wants to fight for, which is, by the way, why he's writing that book. Mm -hmm. And the other one would be what we would, could call um, slavery under a tyrant or mm. a democracy full of equality, but under a huge tyrant, mm. which would be the state is, mm. in a way or another. So he's say, sort of saying, this is the 1830s. This is what I'm seeing. And it'll be up to us, to the citizens and each generation to make sure that the fight of liberty is is still fought, because otherwise we'll, we'll be getting into, uh, you know, equality under a despot. Mm. And those are some amazing words and what has been a very fascinating podcast. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today. You're very welcome. Thank you very much. Will Ogilvie is a long-term research fellow here at the American Institute for Economic Research, and he's pursuing his PhD from UFM in Guatemala. If you liked what you heard today, if you liked what you heard today, make sure to follow AIER on all our various media channels such as Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Spotify, as well as check out our website at AIER.org. If you want to support more cutting-edge researchers like Will, make sure to become a donor. All that information and more can be found at AIER.org. Thank you. Mm -hmm.